Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. This is an audible companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, a book that goes into deep detail on every single wrestling event that's ever taken place inside of Japan's most famous stadium. My name's Chris Charlton, and in this podcast, we take a look at a different year in Tokyo Dome history with a different guest each time. This time, we're looking at 2009, and my guest this time from Voice of Wrestling Super Jcast, it's Joel Abraham. Hello. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure, Chris, to be involved. I'm so happy you invited me on, but uh, I'm going to level with you. I haven't watched Wrestle Kingdom 3. I've got no interest in it. I accepted your invitation to the show solely to argue with you about Shenmue for an hour. Oh, fuck. You just sort of checked whether it was okay to swear before we came on. I said it's okay because now you just made me swear about Shenmue. Jeez. I'm guessing that you don't want to come with me on my tour of Dobuita this January. No, no, Shenmue is bad for, for all sorts of reasons. I'll say that. It's okay. It's okay to like different things. As I'm it finding is. out it doing is. a podcast, some people can get very defensive when you say you don't like something that they like. The, the correct thing to like is, is the Yakuza games, obviously. Which are yeah, I've been told about them. I've been told to try Yakuza 0, which I've, people my keep goodness, telling me is a, a superior goodness, version Joel, of Shenmue. This is, I mean, we're, we're sort of completely diving off the rails of this, this podcast already. But like, um, Yakuza is amazing because it's like, imagine Shenmue, right? But imagine it was also a good video game. And then like, it's, it, that's Yakuza. So um, yeah, enjoy those. Um, what were you doing in 2009? Joel Abraham, what was going on? Playing a lot of video games. A good year for video games, 2009. Uh, you had a lot of indie games appearing, things like Flower, uh, Braid. Also Angry Birds, Minecraft, that was 2009 as well. And uh, one of my favourites, Demon Souls. So ah, doing a lot of that. And um, dipping into a bit of the pro wrestling because at this point I've been lapsed from about 2002 I'd stopped watching but I decided to try and get back into it around 2009 I hosted a Royal Rumble party in January of that year and I was getting really into Randy Orton because he seemed to have all the momentum he was like the cool heel and then he just loses clean to Triple H at Wrestlemania and it was just unbelievable to me that the white hot uh, anti-authority guy loses in the main event biggest show of the year but uh, I'm glad New Japan don't do things like that. Um, yes. So, so what was your introduction to, to Japanese, Japanese wrestling, Joel? Uh, relative latecomer to the party. It was Wrestle Kingdom 11 when I heard all the buzz about Omega and Okada and the six stars. And I had to see what all the fuss was about. And the hype was real. And I became a massive fan, followed it religiously last year, which culminated in me making a, a trip to wrestle kingdom 12 earlier this year and dominion in june as well uh so since then i've, I've been well on true truly on the bandwagon and enjoying most of it ah, so like uh, yeah as, as a relative well as, as kind of not even relative but very, very recent uh fan um what was it like to to go back nine years go back in time to really the you know, if, if sort of Wrestle Kingdom 11 and Wrestle Kingdom 12 and this this last year where it's it's been the, the biggest year, financially at least, for, for New Japan, um, to go back through what is, you know, widely sort of described as this, the sort of winter of, of New Japan Pro Wrestling and these, these very, very small crowds. 
um, in very small buildings. And then here's their, their Tokyo Dome show where it's very strange and they're New Japan guys versus TNA guys um, for, for a bit of an odd show. Um, what was that experience like going back in time nine years there? It was very strange seeing all the cross-promotional stuff and New Japan felt like a company that was still sort of trying to find its own feet and you've got a weird clash between the past and then the present and the future in in the kind of matchups that they had on this card yeah it's um we're in the middle of the 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 sort of non-canonical wrestle kingdoms where you know it, it really sort of solidified around around 2012 where okay now wrestle kingdom is is the the place to go you know it's it's the the thing that that everybody's looking forward to from sort of summer on really um, but in this sort of period from sort of 2006 to, to really up to around 2010, um, we're in the sort of Ricky Choshu, uh, the second era of Ricky Choshu, um, having control of the, of the book here. And it, it really sort of created this thing where, where New Japan certainly like they were in budget cutting mode and trying to, to save money wherever possible. And that kind of led to this, this point where they, they weren't, elevating or giving much publicity to their stars and that kind of meant that there wasn't much confidence in just having new japan people um bring a crowd to the tokyo dome so we had these these outside attractions um which were all japan or indies or noah or, or tna in this case for for the most part yeah i was particularly excited to get involved in this one on that topic because wrestle kingdom and Big Sexy Kevin Nash are not usually two things that you see together, but here we are. I mean, everyone talks about Misawa versus Kobashi or Okada against Omega, but in many ways, I think Kevin Nash in this eight-man tag was the superior match, and I'm looking forward to breaking it down. Wonderful, yeah. Um, the fun thing about Kevin Nash is that somebody sent me a very nice fan sent a very nice tweet to me saying that, that uh, he looks forward to uh, myself and Rocky Romero and Kevin Nash uh, getting behind the huge <laughs> man again, <laughs> you know, he was he did, like tight Kevin, and then his autocorrect autocomplete went to Kevin Nash before Kevin Kelly, <laughs> and it was brilliant. And he tags Kevin Nash in there. He didn't respond. Kevin Nash didn't. Yeah, I thought like that would be. I'd love to do a show with with Kevin Nash. It'd be hilarious. I mean, talking of mistaken identity, like when I was looking this up, I just glanced at the poster for Wrestle Kingdom 3 and for a split second, I thought it was Tanahashi against Goldberg until I realised it was actually Keiji Muto. <laughs> that, is, that is a very big case of mistaken identity. Of course, like six years earlier than this, then, um, you know, it would all tie back together with like the, the famous team of Keiji Muto and, and Goldberg for Wrestle 1, um, a show where Goldberg had a 15-minute entrance. Um I shit you not. We we talked about it on the on the 2003 episode, like real time Goldberg walking from Suidabashi Station to the Tokyo Dome, um, all the while Keiji Muto looking incredibly bored <laughs> in the ring. But uh, yeah, how up are you on your Japanese pop, Joel? Uh, I was going to say, don't ask me about the Japanese pop music. I really tried to do my homework for this episode, Chris, yeah. but I have to draw the line somewhere. No, not at Arashi's. No, no, I'm never going to do it, am I? I'm, I'm hoping we're, we're going to get, we're near the end now. 
We're two thirds of the way through this this podcast run. It has to end. Someone must have been. Surely has has anyone no, been yeah. like, yes, that's my favorite song? No, no. no. I'm gonna get. I'll, I'll try and get. I'll, I'll pull some strings. Try and get Kenny on. You know, for the last one, he'll be like, oh yeah, I know this SK48 song because Jiren is in it or whatever. But um, no. Well then, let's let's cut that out then, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and instead uh, look to. Look to some matches here. You know, I don't think like at this point in time, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm pretty sure I was at this show, um, but it kind of sort of speaks to the the sort of non-canonical nature of it that, that I can't remember very much of it as, as far as live uh, opinions goes. Um, but there's a lot around this time period where you start to see things coalesce and you start to see the embryonic stages of modern new japan in here you know and it, it's always fun watching um new japan world videos and seeing like who are the young lions on the outside you know <laughs> like that's yeah. that's a f- young lion spotting is a tremendous fun game um and it was you know I, I was looking at some of the 1970s matches recently and like that is great stuff because there's so many it's just like endless pull apart brawl with like Tiger Jeet Singh versus Antonio Inoki and it, it's like it breaks into a massive schmaltz at the end and then like the next video is like three days later it's Tiger Jeet Singh versus Antonio and the exact same fucking thing happens um, but yeah that that's great fun because you go oh that's Katsuyori Shibata's dad you know like all <laughs> kind of brilliant stuff um, I like all the little touches like like you say where you can see just little glimpses of modern new Japan and I like the theme of wrestle kingdom, which is something as soon as I hear that, I get chills. I think it's great. Uh, I mean, personal that, memories that have been in the Tokyo dome. Yeah. But that, you, cause you know, that comes from the video game. Like it's the, it's the music from the game. That's just kept, that's been kept all of that time that I always think is it's amazing, you know, because the, the, I mean, it's kind of amazing because like wrestle kingdom itself, was like a Ukes trademark because it was their game, right? And they, they slapped the name on the show to sell the video game. Um, but uh, yeah, all of that stuff transitioned very smoothly into the, the Bushiroad era where I think like other companies that were, you know, perhaps more carny thinking or, or a little bit more prickish with their IPs, then Wrestle Kingdom wouldn't be Wrestle Kingdom, you know? um but it's, yeah it's, it's it's amazing yeah i watched the intro to like the the that old xbox game the other day and it was like oh it's yeah it's it's the wrestling music which is great it's one of the all-time great wrestling show music theme songs or whatever you know it is right up there with the, the classic wrestlemania and the classic royal rumble themes to me you know it's, it's um, very evocative mm. I'm also really happy that the VTR voice guy, he's my favorite. Just just the weird things he's calling out in the opening video package, like ballistic interception and fighting uh, holdings competition. This is one of the things that if I had any um, stroke within New Japan, I, I have zero stroke within New Japan. Um, but if I had any at all, it would be to bring back silly match names for like the, the Tokyo Dome show. You know, they were like, I think like every match here had a silly name. Um, we had uh, some of the highlights here. Uh, Noah Battle Tendencies. Um, I think like that's that's cute, isn't it? We all <laughs> we, get battle tendencies we, we from, time to time. from time to time. Yeah. Um, uh, Crusade for Justice. That's good. Nagata and, and Tanaka. 
uh, Liga 20th anniversary, um, the, the grand opening, the Viento Dorado match. Um, and uh, yeah, those, those are the only ones that are on World. So yeah, I'd have to look at some shadier websites to, to find out the other names there. But uh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. I, I mean, like, it's no patch on Rock Your Hearts of Fucking Outlaws, which is the best... <laughs> best match name for a Tokyo Dome show uh, one of my favourites it wasn't on this show but the, was it Deep Sleep to Lose match Deep Sleep to Lose yep yep that was a great one that was Iskar and Tenzan I believe it was Deep Sleep to Lose um, Absolute Exhaust was also on that show <laughs> just, it was just two men feeling very tired <laughs> like that could make yeah um but uh, but yeah, I mean to to go back to the not not even the first match, the dark match on this show where you see a lot of um, you know hints hints of the future, um, as we see young men Kazuchika who hell he Okada um, Noboro no I don't know mate Yoshihashi and the God King Hirasawa <laughs> who of course. Captain fucking New Japan, get Captain the fuck out of here! Japan and the original Bone Soldier, um, long may he reign. Um, funny story about Hirosawa and Tetsuya Naito. Tetsuya Naito, um, I believe it was this year that we're talking about. It might be 2000, it might have been the year before. Um, won an award, it was like a fan voting award for the uh, the best young lion match of the year i believe um and it was the first trophy he had ever won in his wrestling career right so like they they call it out they have all the young lions around ringside they call tetsuya naito into the ring it's like tetsuya naito's won this award everybody hooray holds the holds the thing up and uh they'd gotten these awards engraved and engraved on tetsuya naito's award was hirasawa's name oh no <laughs> brilliant and um, that was the day that El Ingobernable character was born, I imagine. Yes, right, yeah. But yeah I mean, you see a lot, um, Akadra at this point, that the, the announcers were talking about um, the, the fact that he'd wrestled uh, Shinsuke Nakamura in December. And this was kind of the phase of Nakamura sort of seeking out young talent, right? Because he had his, his rise stable and, and uh, what have you. And you see a lot of little things, like Yoshihashi getting the, the headhunter neckbreaker on, on Milano. Um, you know, I mean, like this is this is a fun uh, sort of six man here with with the the young lions, and it's clear I think that Okada, like at least visually, like stands out more than anyone, mainly because of his height. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, this match jumped off the page to me, and I was excited to talk about it because obviously featuring a very special young talent who'd go on to become one of the greatest wrestlers in the world today. Um, I'm talking about Tai Chi, but yeah, Okada looked pretty good too. And mm. he, he obviously had an interesting path to New Japan. So if I've got this right, Ultimo Dragon sent him to Mexico and he met Nakamura there to work with CMLL. And then Nakamura recommended him to NJPW. So he started training again from scratch at the dojo. So he does already look a cut above the rest here. So, I mean, back then he stood out to you as well, right? Yeah, I mean, like he had a little bit of experience at this point, but he was also like, I think, a little bit beaten down by the experience, you know I mean? He'd had experience and, and very much done that, that lifestyle, as you said, of like wrestling on dirt floors for next to no money kind of thing. And then came across on Shinsuke's recommendation because they were doing, um, 
you know, Nakamura is doing excursions to Mexico and also like Okada would go back and forth to, to LA a little bit as well. And, um, so when he came back and he was in sort of that era of like Naito was a little bit above him and they wound up taking the, the test. I think they took the test together or like Okada was a little bit later and, um, it was very much like break you down and start from, from square one. And Okada would like really struggle with the physical drills. Um, so I think there was a lot of like, we see a lot in him or like we're told to, to make sure that, that he gets his, his spot, but he was, he was really struggling for, for a period there, you know, and, and that sort of leads to that original match with, with Naito and, and Okada where, you know, Naito does the, you know, he's the senpai young lion beating the shit out of the Kohai young lion. And then, you know, two short, two or three short, late, short year, like, years later, um, it's, it's a very, very different story, but, um, yeah, an interesting one, a, a fun little one and, and lots of sort of fun little matches at this, you know, in the early sort of stages of the show, like for instance, for instance, uh, Devitt and Taguchi, um, taking on Mystico and, uh, who is that? Oh, they're on the same team. Yeah, as they, they're on the same team. Yeah. Mystico, Devitt and Taguchi versus, uh, Averno, Jado and Gedo. Um, so kind of you're seeing the, the early stages of what would become Fantastica Mania at this point. You know, I think like the, the first Fantastica Mania was, was a couple of years after this. Um, but like the CMLL relationship is sort of really growing where it wasn't just like Japanese guys going over, but a lot more Mexican guys, um, kind of coming in. Um, but the one person that stands out in this match, obviously, is Mystico. He looked like an absolute star here. I mean, in spite of his weird Enya music, but you can see here why WWE picked him up and hoping he'd be the next Rey Mysterio because he, he certainly looked the part here. And I know he went on to win the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title from Tiger Mask later this year. Uh, I think he lost it back to him a few months later. Um, and for Devitt, I guess this was the early days of Apollo 55. Um, coming off the back of his Prince Prince team with Minoru Tanaka. And it turned out to be quite a big year for him as well in singles action. Uh, he was runner-up in Best of Super Juniors and also the Super J Cup. So um, exciting times for Prince Devitt. Yeah, so this is the the transition. Yeah, yeah I misspoke earlier. I got my, my timeline mixed up because I'm recording like five episodes in like a, a few weeks span here. But uh, yeah, the... Um, we're right on lots of things kind of changing in New Japan. So we're right before uh, chaos being formed um, in April. So like Prince Debit had been part of Rise where you, you had, yeah, the, the, the tag team and yeah, Debit tagging a lot with Minoru and tagging with uh, Milano as well. Um, and then Rise sort of fell apart in the summer of 2008 um so yeah this was really debit kind of on his own drifts back to the 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 regular army and, and teams up with with taguchi um and yeah just got i mean the two of those like went on an absolute tear for the, the next couple of years so yeah it's it's evident like at the time i mean obviously you see like uh yeah the, the potential of mystical but you you always see like the the potential of prince debit and how he just sort of leaps off the page you know i think um, and that's that's very very much uh, evident here. 
I also enjoyed uh, after this match, we got a backstage segment that was straight out of TNA where we got uh, Ricky Choshu, Masahiro Chono, Kurt Angle and Kevin Nash getting out of a black Hummer and then Chono and Nash two sweeting each other. A little nod back to the NWO Japan days. I, yeah. I think you should write a history of the two sweet hand gesture in New Japan. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing but i mean it's all the all the sort of very slight variations of where you put your fingers you know i mean it could be a too sweet could be a sort of stan hansen wish it could be a, a keiji muto progress love like they're, they're very sort of subtly different gestures subtly different positions and, and everything can change in, in a heartbeat so there you are um tna you then you you bring TNA up. Were you a TNA fan in two thousand and nine at all? I was dipping into it. I think this was around the time where they're about to reignite the Monday Night Wars, wasn't it? When they brought Hogan yes. in and all those other guys. Yeah. Was uh, were you were you watching at the time? And was uh, like was TNA coming to New Japan as as someone? If you weren't a fan or you weren't following New Japan at the time, was like oh these TNA people are going to Japan. Was that something that was of interest to you at all? Uh, I wasn't really that involved in it to, to the extent where them going to Japan would make me want to tune into what was going on over there. But I, I definitely was a fan of some of the people that appeared on this show, like the uh, Motor City Machine Guns, who I guess we're going to talk about a bit later. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about them now. Um, yeah, Shelley and Sabin against um, No Limits, Yujiro Takashi and Tetsuya Naito. Um, the team that came about, you know, the, the team name was um, Yujiro's suggestion, as was the fact that they would come out to the two unlimited track, No Limit. <laughs> Um, and this is another great line in Tetsuya Naito's book where he's, he's going, I don't know which came first, you know, in like clear, <laughs> and you, you get such an image, especially like Yujiro at the time, like being a really, really big, big fan of like Euro house, you know, <laughs> like going, yeah, it's so unlimited, fucking brilliant, you know? Of course, the gag back in the day when that song was out was everyone going, no, 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 there's no lyrics. Yeah, so maybe they should have called themselves No Lyrics. Perhaps, perhaps so. Yeah, and they were they were teamed up with Kanto Hoshino, which is a very sort of strange partnership. You know, I think like still it was kind of a, a very weird um, sort of manager to put with them. But that that was a very sort of brief uh, pairing that you were seeing at the time because uh, a little bit later on going into 2010 about a year or a year or so from now um then uh naito and yudro would be in chaos so that is all kind of sorts of of different political maneuverings of things that that most people have forgotten was like tetsuya naito's like brief spell in chaos and um everybody being in in different places but uh yeah what did you think of of naito and yudro against uh, saban and shelly well, I was surprised to find out that this was a Tokyo Dome debut for all four guys. And mm. touching back on the TNA thing, I, I do miss the Motor City Machine Guns because they were brilliant. And I do remember, now you mentioned it, a really good match they had against Generation Me, uh, which was a, a young Max and Jeremy Buck. I don't know what happened to those guys. They just sort of mm. dropped off the radar. Mm. And I mean, of course, Alex Shelley's had more success in New Japan. But Saban's having a low-key, decent year with him now. He had a good best yeah. of Super Juniors. He's he's coming into the Junior Tag League with Kushida. Mm. Um, but No Limit, 
looking at them, they remind me a bit of uh, Rapongi 3K. There's sort of similar aesthetics going on with the, uh, you know, the the power guy and the sort of young, good-looking, high-flying guy. And of course, I, I think this is before they went to Mexico and TNA and the birth of the eye hand gesture thing that Naito does. And so we've got one side, we've got Yujiro Takahashi, who not only is he the second best Yujiro, but he's also the second best Takahashi in the company in spite of the university amateur wrestling credentials. But uh, what, what do you think of the Naito baby face in peril? Because I quite liked Stardust genius Naito from what I'm seeing, but I'm not sure, I mean, particularly in this match, that working from the bottom necessarily played to his strengths here. Um, I think he was clearly like the the big star in this match, um, you know. And I think it, it's interesting, yeah. The the Rapongi three K connection um, that you make, you know, I think that's that's fairly apt because, yeah, like you said, Yujiro being the the sort of um, power guy, and then you know, Naito being very much the the hot tag guy here. I think, um, and yeah, it, it's very clear that the Naito is the, is the star, and he comes in and gets that huge German on on Chris Sabin uh, at one point. But there, I think both of them are, are works in progress. They had actually both been to America together. They've both been to Mexico together as well. Um, but uh, what kind of made them and what what they they really actually enjoyed doing was um through towards the end of, of 2009 um well 08 09 um they were doing the first never shows um and that's a thing that, another thing that, that people would would scratch their head and go oh they they had never shows but uh but yes they they did in fact and um this was kind of coming off of New Japan doing a lot of experimenting with cross brands and different other brands of New Japan. So you had the, uh, you know things like called WrestleLand and Lockup that were kind of more um, sports entertainment based, you know, sort of drama based things, and they had more comedy in there or they had more gimmick matches in there. Um, and Never was kind of like a little bit like um, the Lions. Uh, Lionsgate, Lionsgate, yes, the Lionsgate shows that that they have now, where it was kind of younger talent, not necessarily like entirely young, but younger talent, and a lot of people coming in from the independents and outside, and they'd have them in the same place that Lionsgate does as well, which is um, in Shinjuku Face, and uh, really that whole concept, that whole brand was built around Naito and Yujiro, and so they they sort of really. Um, hit their stride doing those shows um, and to the point where they were called up and they they stopped doing the Never shows and Naito and, and especially Yujiro was really upset that they weren't doing Never shows anymore you know he, he was really sort of deflated by, by the whole thing um, so it's interesting how you know they, they sort of really found their feet performing in front of like small crowds of a, of a few hundred as opposed to you know the the few thousand that they had in, in the tokyo dome at the time yeah um it was certainly interesting to see here i mean this back to the match it was right up my street i love get matches like this tons of double team moves i love double team moves um alex shelley got a bloody nose he got dropped on his head once or twice it was quite brutal mm. and uh, we saw the curse of the stardust press at the tokyo dome so i, I can see why he prefer working in front of the smaller crowds but i mean in this match we didn't actually see much of no limit there wasn't much of a story either it was more like a Motor City Machine Guns exhibition match. So I guess if that was the intention, then it served its purpose. But it seemed to me that the fans didn't seem too keen on the title change. Yeah, well, I mean, I think as well, there was perhaps 
a little bit of we'd get a little bit more familiar with with most of the machine guns as we go on alex shelley would have a really really big run you know and get, and get to the point where he was he was super hot in like in in two or three years from from this point but then he'd you know he wanted to go back to school and then do less wrestling you know and it was a case where new japan wanted to use him an awful lot more um but uh shelly felt that, that he didn't want to make those commitments anymore um so it was perhaps a little bit of, of unfamiliarity also like probably more the the Naito was was getting super over at the time as well but for Naito and Yujo it was more a case of like they're clearly not the junior heavyweight mold at this point and they're pretty big you know um so it wasn't too long before the before they were moving up and then the the year after this the, the next tokyo dome show they win the heavyweight title belts so they were the first team to actually do that and and do both junior heavyweight and heavyweight um tag belts so yeah every, everybody's sort of moving places i think is is the story behind that one yeah and it seems that there was a quite a thriving junior tag scene at the time because aside from these two teams, you've got Jado, Gado, Polo 55 and Akira and Liger. They were quite a decent team back then. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of a lot of guests sort of coming in and coming out um, where, you know, they, they weren't the, the junior had the junior era in general was kind of, I think, still coming off of the, um, you know, the sort of innocuist era where that really affected, I think, the junior heavyweights because it, it made all the junior heavyweights like really, really grounded. Um, and they were doing a lot more sort of map-based work, a lot more grappling. You saw a lot more sort of grounded things, especially from someone like Tiger Mask, say, who was much more of a grounded wrestler than the other Tiger Mask before him were. Um, so it was a different style and then they'd sort of get more of the, the high flyers from, from Mexico, really you know um but apollo gogo like really broke the mold and then they they get some some yeah outsiders from other promotion ddt for instance you know and that's when you get kenny omega and, and koto Bushi popping up over the of the next couple of years as well so yeah it's interesting you mentioned tiger mask because we got the iwgp junior heavyweight championship match with him and loki and it wasn't really the kind of junior heavyweight championship match that I've been conditioned to expect today with sort yeah. of very frenetic, high-paced, high-risk, high-flying offense. Um, I was expecting a bit more from this match. It was quite short at eight minutes, and a lot of the time, the two guys didn't quite look on the same page. The match didn't really build up to a crescendo. Just kind of ended after Tiger Mask like decided he'd had enough, did a few suplexes, and that was that. He made Loki look like a bit of a geek. And uh, I mean, I would actually go as far to say that I think Tiger Mask has had better matches than this in this year's Best of Super Juniors in 2018. Yeah, quite possibly. You know, and I think like a lot of people, there is a segment. Of, of fandom I think like at the time as well there was a segment of, of fans probably earlier in his career you know he got a lot more stick from uh, the, the fans that, that were familiar with the other Tiger Masks and were kind of upset that oh this isn't that Tiger Mask you know and I think like he had a very tough time kind of transitioning to the fact of no I'm, I'm, I'm me you know even though he was he was trained by Satoru Sayama um, he was trained by the first Tiger Mask but he was still kind of you know it, it's incredibly difficult it must be incredibly difficult to take the this character that other people have portrayed very very successfully um, and that isn't your character and then trying to still have your own identity and yet portray this this other person you know i think like there was a lot of very unfair like harsh criticism of, of tiger mask at the time um 
where it's like, yeah, I mean, now he's been Tiger Mask way longer than anybody else has been Tiger Mask. You know, it's kind of interesting that, that he's stayed with that character for, for so long, you know, um, when the other people portraying them, you know, wanted to, to get the mask off at, at the end of the day. But um, yeah. I don't know yeah. if it's because of that longevity, but people seem quite fond of him these days. It's like you're sort of mm. your grumpy old uncle. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think it, it, it's like, it's the longevity as as well as the fact. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of legend status <laughs> at this point. You know, and I think like tagging with with Liger on the reg as well that that kind of helps, doesn't it? But um, yeah, I know, I know you're dying to talk about the the TNA tag match, so so do. All your Kurt Angle and Kevin Nash's. Yeah, I mean this this is incredible. Just seeing some of the names in this match, and I should say off the bat, it feels weird for me as a British person saying Giant Bernard. So I'm just going to call him Giant Bernard. Bernard, yeah, uh, it's Bernard, yeah, Giant Bernard. Um, and just looking at some of the names here, we have got Carl Anderson who came from the LA Dojo, and mm. I heard he replaced Travis Tomko, which is a, yeah. a name you don't hear too often these days, yeah. and. Just even the little things like the way people look, their hairstyles, like seeing Tomohiro Ishii with his fresh Prince of Bel Air high top Fat fade top, haircut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, also, seeing this match made me wish we'd had a Kurt Angle against Ishii singles match. That would have been something special. Um, and we spoke a bit about the factions before. Like seeing GBH here, it's quite interesting to me because nowadays GBH is just Makabe and Honma. But mm. back then, it's a massive faction. And yeah, like you said, it was on the verge of a another one of these shocking betrayals and the formation of noted heel faction chaos. But uh, this match, I mean, everyone just comes in for their spots. We got a, a big boy face off with Nash and Bernard. But aside from that, there's nothing really to write home about except for my favorite bit. One of my favorite bits on this whole show, when Ricky Choshu tries to tag in Kevin Nash and Nash just looks at him and shakes his head. Like, I think Chono was meant to be tagging him, but I just love the look on Nash's face. I, I don't know if you ever listened to the Laps Fan podcast, but when that happened, I could just imagine Kevin Nash saying, not me, brother. It's fucking fake. And afterwards, we get uh, Bernard attacking Kurt Angle. I think they set up a match later in the year at Sumo Hall, didn't they? Yes, yes, that's what uh, that's what you were going for there. Yeah. That's uh yeah, I, I guess you know, I mean it, it was all kind of the idea of like the, the Japanese uh sort of legends against um teaming with the American legends against against Great Bash Hill there. But um yeah, I, I think probably on the on the last episode with, with Wade when we were talking about Kurt and uh Angle and Nagata and then you know, leading into Angle and Nakamura uh, later on in in that year in two thousand and eight, um, just imagining Kurt Angle if you know if Kurt Angle in his prime was was able to to mix it up with with an issue or with Katsuyori Shibata, like or or with you know so many of of like the 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 other New Japan talent that, that wasn't that long from from coming back or coming up. Um, yeah, yeah, it really would have been, really would have been something. That's one of the great sort of pro wrestling what ifs, isn't it? But um, yeah, I think one of the things as well is like Great Bash Heel was so. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you sort of speak about the the the, the great betrayals that that led us to chaos. But I mean, you know, Great Bash Heel was the very definition of like a, a sort of a hokey run-in interference a go-go like um 
you know, heel stable. It, it sort of was exactly what the name says it was, like Great Bash Heel. Um, and so this was coming off. This was the year that, that 2008 was the year that Hiroki Goto won the G1. And that is a crazy match to watch now. Um, you know, to imagine like this match that is full, the G1 final being so full of, of interference and then like the old sort of classic referee, you're out of here kind of moment, you know, and all of this stuff. And then Goto coming through while he's still bloody because, you know, he's had chairs swung at him and stuff. And it's amazing to see that and think, oh my God, if this, if that match had happened in today's scenario or today's climate like climate like everybody would would shit on it royally um but uh yeah the the great bash heel are kind of a a throwback i think yeah it was very interesting to me to watch that you know coming off the back of a g1 with all the interference with the the firing squad and farley and tamatonga and a lot of people getting worried about the westernization and oh we don't like these western heels and this western style booking and going back and seeing it's been happening like literally more than a decade well, more than four decades <laughs> yeah, i think um yeah I, I think if you went back and looked at some of the matches from 1974 it might be an eye-opener for, for for some fans but uh you know i think like that's one of the things that they really sort of settled down you know one of the things that that's really been a big success i think of the ghetto era and like um perhaps to an extent there's there's a bushy road influence on that is let's protect the things that are most important um so that okay we, you know we're going to have we we want to do this thing with the firing squad or we want to do this this stuff with with bullet club but the G1 final is kind of sacrosanct, you know, or the Wrestle Kingdom main event is kind of sacrosanct, and, and we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna, we're not gonna touch that. We're not gonna mess with that. Um, you know, and I think like they've been very good so far, you know, at sort of protecting what their most sort of important properties are, you know, at the, at the end of the day. Um, yeah, and I know Gato's a big fan of that sort of Western style of booking and ECW and things like that. So he's he's got to rein himself in a bit here. So let's, let's give him credit for doing that at least. <laughs> there you go. So uh, this all led up to a main event of Keiji Muto, IWGP champion Keiji Muto. Um, you know, which is strange at this point in his career, you know, he's in his forties was like the Tokyo sports MVP, I think for 2008, whatever, you know, despite being sort of 42 or whatever. Um, and being IWGP champion against, uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. Tanahashi used to be like Muto's understudy. So he would used to carry his bags and like do his laundry and things like that. So that's an, an element of this story, but also like Hiroshi Tanahashi being, um, being the new Japan guy against the old Japan president. So like there's the element of Tanahashi being like the, the, the hero for, for new Japan, but it's also a little bit like prick Tanahashi as well. Um, you know, and, and his main sort of thing during the press conferences was, I'm going to make sure that he leaves in a wheelchair, you know, and, and it was all about the knees in this match. Um, which is a fairly good, you know, I, I would say Keiji Muto at this stage in his career had fairly big bullseyes on his knees. <laughs> so reasonably. Yeah. I was really surprised to see that there were so many title changes this year. Um, but it was changing between Muto, Tanahashi, Nakanishi, Nakamura, mm-hmm. and it's 
quite jarring as someone who's watching in an era where title changes are very much protected. And like you say, he's 45, Muto, but really active. I think he was triple crown champion at All Japan as mm. the great Muta. So I saw he beat Nakamura for this title in March 2008. I mean, how did that go down at the time? Was it a shock to see someone that old winning the IWGP heavyweight title? Yeah, um, to an extent, yeah. But I mean, it was also this thing of like Muto being on an absolute tear um, that year. Like, like all of his performances were were really, really phenomenal. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think as as much as anything, it was it was the perhaps the age, but also the fact that he was sort of working two schedules at once. That there was uh, there was a really big surprise. Um, so and this like comes off of another thing that this match comes off of with with Tanahashi was they they met in the the Champion Carnival. So Tanahashi went to the Champion Carnival in in two thousand eight and was just absolutely booed out the building like every time. Like this was like real, um, you know, Tanahashi having to be heel Tanahashi, um, and that sort of had led to like a thirty minute draw with with Muto um where it was a very similar sort of start to this to that match to this one you know where they started sort of feeling each other out and then Tanahashi would go after Muto's knee and that's that's pretty much what we got here was like the, this feeling out process and then sort of assaulting the knee and there was like the kind of one-upmanship you know because like it was all the the bulk of this match I I don't know if, if you want to have a good drinking game like take a shot every time someone does a dragon screw you know oh man we got a walker's variety pack of dragon screws here we got all the yeah. flavors we got top rope we got off the apron over the mm. guardrail over the ropes a lot of drop kicks a lot of shining wizards as well yeah yeah there you go well that's that's keiji muto of the era but like i think there was like it's interesting like you get a good it's a very simple story of the same move and then who can do it better and so there's the game of one-upmanship with with muto like you said where uh you know tanahashi will do some dragon screws and attack the knee and then keiji muto is like yeah i can do better than that i'll do it off the apron to the floor or i'll do it over the guardrail or whatever um and just sort of yeah it was kind of both each of them going for the other's knee and then killing each other's momentum, you know? And I think so to an extent, I think certainly if you're a fan of the current new or the more modern new Japan main event style, maybe it was a more difficult match to watch. What do you think of like how this match was paced, John? The one thing that stood out to me was the dynamics, which I thought were a bit strange because obviously Tanahashi's doing his arrogant ace of the century thing, which he's kind of still doing today. But with Tanahashi dominating, working on the leg of Muto, it made Muto the de facto baby face. And I, I don't know if that was the intention going in, but just to me, this is vintage Tanahashi. He's the master of these subtle little moments that help like weave together the, the grander narrative of the match without hitting you over the head with it. His storytelling is, is so good. Like, I like writing essays about Tanahashi matches. It's so good. Like There's a moment early on when he's stomping on Muto's leg and then he stops for a moment as if he's asking himself, hmm, is this okay? Am I the bad guy here? And then he's like, ah, fuck it. And he just keeps stomping on his knee. And just other little moments I love, like when he slapped Muto away from going for his leg and when he fell with a German suplex and then goes for a chop block instead, uh, collapsing the bridge on his German suplex because yeah. of his busted knee like Kawada. And the little touches like that that make Tanahashi one of the greatest of all time. And I just find it absolutely remarkable that looking at this match and then looking at the uh, main event we've got coming up from Wrestle Kingdom 13 it's amazing that full decade on 
Tanahashi's still main eventing a Wrestle Kingdom. And I can't think of many other wrestlers with that kind of longevity at such a consistently high level. And personally, I, I'm not sure Tanahashi gets the praise that he deserves for that. Like, if you think of the biggest names in the West, in my lifetime at least, they haven't come close to that kind of longevity. Like, you know, if you're talking stars like Hulk Hogan, John Cena, it, it, would I be totally out to lunch if I suggested that without Hiroshi Tanahashi? New Japan, as we know it today, might not even exist. Um, well, might not even exist is, is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but I, I mean, yeah, it, it's. I think you know when when all is said and done, we, you know, we'll we'll definitely be holding like Hiroshi Tanahashi as one of the best people that that have ever done it, you know, and uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, it's one of those things, and the the main event of Wrestle Kingdom being kind of sacrosanct, as, as we said, and that kind of speaks to. Um, the number of people that can step up and and be in there, you know, and every Tokyo Dome main event since 2006, you know, it's it's been Shinsuke Nakamura, Hiroshi Tanahashi, Kazuchika Okada. Um, that's it, right? Yeah, just like those three, and then other people, you know. Um, but uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi has been the only one that that's that's been consistently main eventing main eventing for you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years. Like his first Tokyo Dome main event was, well, if you want to count like a 10-man tag, it was like 2004, but 2005. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it's crazy to think that. And all of those main events have been great. You know, they, I don't think he's ever been in a situation where it, it's going to be a tough one. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it brings to mind just, I don't think there's, it's hard not it i mean there's so much going on with that match with with kenny coming up in in 2019 that you you just can't not be enthralled by that i think you know it's a very different it's a general i mean it's interesting because like it's a generational gap much like this match was you know where it's kind of like tanahashi versus you know Muto being like the the older person, but I guess they kind of very much have the a similar philosophy to wrestling. They're kind of mirror images of themselves, just at different stages in their career, right? Whereas like with Kenny, they're completely the opposite people, also at different stages in their career. You know, the age gap is maybe a little bit smaller, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, he's never not a compelling figure. And also, he doesn't look any different today how he did back no. then. He looks like he hasn't aged a day. It's remarkable. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, a guy that sort of nailed down this look and I'll go for it, you know. One that, that like, the awesome bits of trivia that I just think, it, it you know, it's a cool line that, that never gets said enough. It's, like, that ring jacket that he's worn, you know, I mean, like, different colours or whatever, but he always has the same ring jacket for years and years and years. And, like, it's got the, the cutaway waist, right, which always looks a little bit funny. It's like, why is the waist designed like that? Um, and the waist is cut away because it's the exact same size as the IWGP championship. You know, like that, that thing. What a like worker. Knowing, yeah. Knowing like is destined to, to have this. I'm going to design my ring gear so that this fits perfectly <laughs> with that. You know, um, it's the last piece of the puzzle for him or whatever. Um, that's it's it's tremendous. It's wonderful. But uh, yeah, that that was the thing. Ultimately, of course, um, Tanahashi wins with with two high fly flows, and like the story is that you know Keiji Muto is like pro wrestling love. You know that that's his. We're in the pro wrestling love um, era of Keiji Muto, but like Hiroshi Tanahashi is the love for New Japan pro wrestling that, that made him win. So 
that's what took yeah I, of I i really enjoyed all the little callbacks in this match as well like the there was a, a figure four spot which i think was a reference back to muto being takada in 1995 they had a little knee drop kick battle that was a bit like the nurse strike exchanges and a callback to the second muto against nakamura match where the shining wizard was reversed into a, a frankensteiner and of course the overarching thing that we see even today in 2018 with tanahashi's ego near costing in the match when he goes up for that second high fly flow and he still does that today so it's just really interesting watching him 10 years apart where you can still see the little echoes of his his matches and his style yeah absolutely yeah just uh, so much that that you you're rewarded for for knowing every single one of those de- details but yeah at the same time you're you're completely you know you can watch this match on on sort of surface level as well and and find it equally enjoyable i think but um yeah so that's what takes us out of of this look at wrestle kingdom 3 was there was there anything else that that uh, that you wanted to make note of um we could touch on the uh the, the semi-main event the nakamura and goto against misawa and sugiura match but uh, i don't know how you're doing for time um yeah not too bad for time but uh yeah this is kind of the the ongoing story of of goto and sukura which sort of went it stretched over sort of three or four years here um but uh poor poor goto it's always poor goto but uh you know he managed to get the get the rare the rare win over misara and sukura but like the real story here was like this was misara's last match in the tokyo dome of course yeah, so um, I think the plan was to have uh, Misawa take on Nakamura in a singles match, which obviously never happened. Mm. So, yeah, very sad watching that because he, he does get a huge pop. And it's the last time we'd ever get a Tokyo Dome crowd chanting his name, um, even if he does look a bit like a grumpy Japanese Stuart Lee. He didn't really do a great deal in this match. You, you get the feeling that he was winding down a bit, but obviously no one expected him to end up actually passing away because of, you know, in-ring wrestling especially not that early on because it was mm. definitely a shock shockingly young age to die yeah yeah absolutely you know i, th- I think like that's that's the that's the real thing you know that that's the only true sort of take home at this point yeah because like the, the visual of nakamura tying up with with miss hour is like a, a kind of an irresistible one but um yeah it's a sad note there Okay, so as we get out of 2009 and knowing, uh, Joel, that this episode is being recorded crazy in advance, so we, we're going to be talking about this going up on, on post-wrestling around the start of November. So what will you, be have, what will you have going on early November in your life that, that you want to plug and promote here? If you would like to check out my New Japan Pro Wrestling podcast, the Super J cast, as Chris mentioned at the start of the show, uh, you'll hear myself and Damon McDonald talking about New Japan on the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. So if uh, you fancy checking that out, that will be very much appreciated. And give us a follow on Twitter at the Super J cast. Or if you want to see photos of my cat Scampi, uh, you can follow me at Joel J. Abraham. But uh, probably following the Super J cast will be uh, a more enjoyable route. Kids, kids, kids! You're not Twitch streaming, Shemri. Oh, that's a good idea. I did want to get on and and, and do something live with Rich Crash or Voices of Wrestling, but uh, we'll we'll have that in the pipelines. <laughs> the, the fuck, Chris John, Shemri streaming <laughs> session. 
Yeah. Um, cool. You can, of course, buy Eggshells Pro Wrestling at the Tokyo Dome, uh, where books are sold, such as Amazon.com, for example. Or you can get me at ReasonJP on Twitter if you want to talk to me directly. Next time, we will be talking to uh, Joel's very partner, indeed. Uh, Damon McDonald will be joining me to talk about 2010 next time. Uh, until then, uh, take care of yourselves, and I'll speak to you again soon. Goodbye.